Welcome to the Quillette Podcast. My name is Claire Lehman and I am Editor-in-Chief of Quillette. Quillette is where free thought lives. We are an independent grassroots platform for heterodox ideas and fearless commentary. Our podcast is a team effort and is jointly hosted by myself, Associate Editor Toby Young and Canadian Editor Jonathan Kay. You can support our podcast by visiting patreon.com forward slash Quillette and becoming a monthly patron. By becoming a monthly patron, you'll also receive our weekly newsletter. Welcome to the Quillette Podcast. I'm Jonathan Kay, Quillette's Canadian editor. In an age when many American conservative journalists have become unapologetic cheerleaders for Donald Trump, the Washington-based Weekly Standard magazine stood out for its independence and intellectual rigor. But in December, the owner of the Weekly Standard closed the magazine down, following many years of financial losses. Among the veteran journalists who lost their jobs was Bill Kristol, the magazine's founder, and, until several years ago, its longtime editor-in-chief. In late January, Mr. Crystal spoke to Quillette over the phone about the Weekly Standard, the future of journalism, conservative politics, and his own plans in the post-Weekly Standard era. Here are excerpts from our conversation. Your life has been so closely intertwined with the Weekly Standard for more than two decades. What have you been doing with your time this last month? Somehow managed to keep busy, but you're right. There is a kind of a twitch on uh, Thursday, which is when we close the print uh, weekly, uh, the print edition of the Weekly Standard. And I wake up Thursday morning, and it, you know, in the old days, it was you know 20 phone calls of what should be on the cover, and let's rewrite the cover line, and maybe we should shuffle things around in light of late news. And I would owe an editorial, and I'd be working on that early Thursday morning, and I sort of wake up Thursday morning and feel a combination of a sense of relief. Uh, obviously, and, and even liberation, because, you know, 20 years is a long time to write a weekly magazine, and I had terrific colleagues and associates. I by no means did the bulk of the work, and even the daily, obviously, the website was a big deal, to, you know, increasingly over the years, much of a uh, responsibility as the, as the weekly print magazine. So a sense of liberation, a sense of, you know, sorrow that it's not there. I'm, I'm heartened by people telling me they miss it, and but the archives are there, and, and, and the people have gone on to get good jobs uh, in, in almost all cases, and, and there might be, there's a successor website, The Bulwark, where some of the people have gone, and uh, which is more focused really on sort of day-to-day Republican Party conservatism type issues. Steve Hayes may well try to do a much bigger kind of follow-on effort. Uh, but there are other, pl- other, places, other places to read good material, including yours. And the good news is that there's, I don't think there's really a shortage of outlets for intelligent thought about policy, politics, and culture. So you mentioned, uh, I think you called him Steve Hayes, probably known to readers as Stephen Hayes, one of, of several real stars that have emerged from Weekly Standard. When you look back, you have created a diaspora of, of real intellectual heavyweights. It's nice of you to mention that, because I, that is one of the things... I'm proudest of again. I, I was one of many who who put it together and who helped uh, provide an umbrella really for these people to do their work. We were always a lightly edited magazine, so I don't deserve much credit for. And we weren't really into, you know, very intensive mentoring and all those sorts of things. We, it was. I think we provided a good work environment and a lot of stimulating colleagues and associates, and people made their own way. But you know, whether it's David Brooks or uh, who ended up at the New York Times, we, Times John Pat Hartz was one of my co-founders, obviously editing Commentary magazine now. 
interesting cultural thinkers, Jody Bottom, who edited the back of the book, Adam Kuyper, who's, I think, looking to maybe start something new in a kind of arts and letters uh, website uh, type of thing. Um, awful lot of young people, Mike Warren, who's now at CNN, and uh, John McCormick, and I won't bother with all the names, but, you know, who I think got good starts at the standard. So I, I think we were pretty good at spotting talent, and, and more importantly, uh, we were... Uh, always open to people joining us, both obviously if we had jobs, but writing for us. I'm proud that we sort of had an open door. And one of the things I did insist on early on was that we not have a sort of insular view that, well, we we publish our own people, but we're going to be very skeptical of stuff coming across the transom. And all kinds of people and all kinds of articles came across the transom. And some of them were more one-off and two-off and, you know, the good articles and people went on with their lives. But some people became regular contributors. Some people actually joined the staff. The other thing I think we did is we were able, again, you, you, you guys do this too, you know, to find academics who were known perhaps in their disciplines, but not widely known outside, provided a, a place they could write less academic prose, comment on broader cultural issues and trends. And I think they've become much better known as a result of the Weekly Standard. And I, insofar as more people will learn from them now, whether it's Paul Cantor at the University of Virginia, Harvey Mansfield at Harvard, he was already pretty well known. But, but I think we've inter- helped introduce some of these people to a much broader audience. So I, I think all of that is, is good. For me, it was never about the standard as a brand. It was about, you know, helping uh, encourage a healthy discussion of ideas and, and policies and politics. And I think we did some of that. On the other hand, we also uh, were supposed to be advancing a kind of reformist, forward-looking, intelligent, enlightened conservatism, and we ended up with Donald Trump as president. So I, I can't really claim that we had a, it was entirely a, uh, a success story. Well, let's go back in time a little bit, because I think uh, that that depends upon what your time frame is. Uh, because in the certainly in the 1990s, I think people would have said that the Weekly Standard was a, a, a success story. And, and going into the, the George W. Bush administration, I remember there was one line that was, the Weekly Standard was, I think, the in-flight magazine of Air Force One. So, so certainly you, you were influential during that, during that period. I think we were in... in- sometimes on some issues more than on others and with some readers more than with others. No, but it, it is funny. And the Trump phenomenon has cast such a distorting shadow over everything. In 2015, so just, what, four years ago now, um, a new Republican class showed up. And I remember we were joking that people ranging from uh, uh, Senator Cotton of Arkansas to Congressman Mike Gallagher, I guess he wasn't yet a congressman, he's the class of 2016, but of Wisconsin, at least Stefanik of New York. And these were all people, younger Republicans, who had run for the Senate and the House, and in these cases, who had won. Marco Rubio was already there. These were all people who we knew personally. A lot of them, uh, they all read the Weekly Standard. I don't know if they read every article or every issue, but they they were familiar with it and certainly looked at it and uh, told their staffs to, to go through it for them. So, um, some of them, you know, we got to know when they were very young and had written for us, actually. They are way before they were congressmen or senators. So one had the sense in 2015 that, there was a kind of younger generation coming along in the party, and, and obviously many, many staffers whom, you know, who aren't household names who worked for the Scott Walkers and the Larry Hogans and the Charlie Bakers. These are the governors of major states. And just one had the feeling that uh, I was not pessimistic, actually, about the Republican Party or about conservatism. It seemed like there was a kind of reformist conservatism domestic policy. Foreign policy was complicated, but I we, we were 
I thought there were lots of people who understood the importance of American world leadership, and there were interesting cultural debates going on, sort of how much one couldn't just be backward-looking, but on the other hand, one didn't want to be mindlessly progressive, and what was there, how did one develop, sort of a, how should one think about some of these big cultural issues, a lot of the fights for academic freedom on campus we were very involved in, so I, I wasn't pessimistic, I think we had real influence and as I say, I, and I think we still do, honestly, people look to, uh, or did until December when we closed, and the people who were associated with the Weekly Standard still do. It is, though, distorting. The Trump shadow makes one sort of, uh, is a real distortion. It's not just a distortion in the sense that people don't see clearly because of it, but it really has a, a real-world effect, so that things that seem to be on the ascendancy and ideas that up-and-coming types should embrace or debate, at least, now been either shoved aside or, or being debated in a kind of a distorted way, which actually damages those ideas. That's one reason I've been so concerned by the Trump phenomenon. I mean, the, it's not just that he's a bad president, which he is, and I think he's doing some damage to the country, which he is, but he's distorting a lot of conservative positions and, and, and thoughts almost, and not just conservative, but even, let's say, people who try to be free thinkers, uh, and not sort of dogmatic, orthodox progressives. A lot of those, a lot of that thought is getting is harder to advance in a serious and you know constructive way in, in the age of Trump. Is it just more difficult putting politics and ideology aside to get anybody to read a five thousand word cover story in a weekly political magazine? Yes, I mean there's some of that, and that's true. And it's also more difficult, probably, to get people from other points of view to to read or, or and even to get writers probably to say, well, look, on this issue, maybe uh, some of us were wrong. And, and here's someone we don't, I don't agree with on A, B, or C, but I think on this, it's a good point. The other kind of distortion, uh, not to obsess on Trump, but I just am struck by it, uh, um, is, you know, you make the case for against political correctness, which God knows we did enough of at the Weekly Standard. But then suddenly in, in, in sort of Trump land, being against political correctness means being in favor of demonizing others, who, you know, and, and having a kind of political correctness on the right, which doesn't allow you to suggest that, you know, the most kind of vulgar and simple-minded nativist authoritarian kind of point of view isn't necessarily right either. And that if you disagree with it, you're not, you know, you're, you're not a defector or a someone who's not committed to, you know, America or something like that. So it's been, I, I think this is one of the really un, underappreciated consequences of Trump and Trumpism, uh, the, the difficulty of having a sober and serious and also actually amusing and uh, lively intellectual debate. Now, many people go on and do it, and that's our, all of us, are, I think, are committed to not letting that, uh, this get, uh, everything get turned into vulgar sloganeering on both sides but the the strength of vulgar sloganeering is depressing i've got to say in terms of nuanced thought and admitting past mistakes i know you're probably sick of this question but have you or the weekly standard ever done any kind of comprehensive reckoning for perhaps some of the the exaggerations or misstatements that were made about the information that western powers had before the iraq war we certainly addressed that and, you know, talked a lot about intelligence reform and other such things. I don't know that we've had a kind of comprehensive statement about it. We might all have slightly different views. I mean, one thing about the Weekly Standard was, and one thing about the circles around the Weekly Standard, if I can put it that way, the intellectual circles that, that do exist, uh, even though the magazine doesn't anymore uh, today, you know, we don't all agree on everything. And so some people, Max Boot, who wrote a lot for us, has really said he 
he regrets the part he played in making the case for the war. He obviously none of us knew that that, that Saddam didn't have weapons of mass destruction or didn't have them nearly as ready as as we all thought. Uh, and Max is really probably rethought things in one way. Bob Kagan has it in another. Ruel Garrett, who thought uh, in Islamism could would have to be unleashed and was going to be unleashed anyway, and there was a way to channel it and. I'm not sure. Maybe he's a little less confident of that today. I'm ambivalent about some of these things myself. So I think there, the the sort of uniformity of view among our writers and contributors and even editors was always exaggerated. I suppose that's what happens. I mean, people say the Weekly Standard thought X or the Weekly Standard made the case for Y. And then it turns out, well, it was a, a couple of times it was actually editorials. So I suppose it's more appropriate to use that formulation. But often it was writers and not everyone agreed. And and some of these, and if you're an intelligent person, you rethink things as you as you go along as well. I guess I, I'm thinking of the specific connection or lack of connection between Osama bin Laden and Saddam Hussein, which was played up on, on more than one occasion. In, well, in, I think in there, there's some. I, I don't think that. I don't know. I and that was more of a Tom Jocelyn, Stephen Hayes kind of thing. And I, I'm not sure they would agree that that was disproven, or even that it wasn't in fact confirmed in certain respects. Certainly, the Iran connection, for example, to Al Qaeda which uh, we argued a lot about, has been conf- more or less confirmed by the Osama bin Laden documents and by subsequent you know, reporting and, and revelations and the extent to which for all the talk of, oh, what is Shia and what is Sunni, and they hate each other, and, and they do hate each other to some degree. They also cooperated with each other. And, and I think the broader argument that, you know what, these, these rogue regimes and terrorists do have all kinds of connections, and it's not ridiculous to think that in dealing with one, you're also hurting the other. I think it's actually true, and it's true with, with Putin, and it's true with North Korea, um, true with Iran and the Middle East. So I, I, uh, I, I don't think the people who wrote those articles made those arguments. I, I'm not sure they would agree that it was entirely uh, maybe particular assertions turned out or, you know, or claims or arguments they might modify today. But I think the notion that there were connections in that in those terror networks was not – I think people would, would, would continue to hold those that argument. Let's shift a little bit to the the media climate in conservative circles, because for as long as there's been conservative or liberal media, there's always been sniping within those camps. How would you compare the sniping that took place, for instance, between Breitbart and legacy outlets with, with what you experienced earlier in your career when there were discussions, say, between Weekly Standard and National Review and more established outlets? At some point... And this is a very unfortunate development. It, it, we went from having healthy discussions about and disputes about policies, including foreign policy. It's not as if everyone agreed with sort of Bob Kagan's, in my view, of America's role in the world. It's not as if everyone agreed on economic policy. There were supply-siders, and there were traditional budget balancers, and there were people who were pro-business and people who were much more concerned about workers getting their fair share. Those were I, We took great pride in publishing contrarian pieces, unorthodox pieces, or when Stelzer must have written for us 10 times, making the case for the carbon tax, because you had to take climate change seriously, at least as a as a possible threat. I mean, obviously it was really happening, but as a possible danger, which at least it was worth addressing in a kind of precautionary way. And then others, we wrote other pieces debunking some of the more extreme claims about climate change. So we had diversity in our pages. We certainly, there was plenty of intellectual debate on, on the right, and I think that was a healthy thing. I, I really disliked the notion that everyone's supposed to be in one camp and agree on everything and not criticize each other. No healthy movement 
no movement is healthy if it doesn't have internal debate. I think there's a high correlation, in fact, between movements becoming stale and ossified and, and declining, and then often becoming also more, more intolerant within themselves and also a, a more sort of just hostile and defensive outside uh, when they start to turn on debate. So I'm for debate. I have no problems with there being people who are much less fond of free trade than I am and so forth. But it's, it became at some point more about people's motives and, they, and name calling and globalist elites who benefit from the current system and enjoy going to cocktail parties in Washington and like their access to power, I guess, and all these kind of silly things as opposed to actually, well, let's have a debate about whether the international liberal order has been good or bad for the last 70 years. And is free trade on, on net a benefit or a, or, or a cost? And what about immigration? It's all became name-calling and, and somewhat cartoonish, actually. That, I think, social media has contributed to that, you know, that's become, there was always a lot of that on the left. I, I sort of associated with the left, but uh, there's just as much I've got to say on the right now. Speaking of the cocktail party circuit, there must have been many times during your career at the Weekly Standard when at conferences or parties or whatnot, you would come across people with whom you'd had exchanged barbed words, either in op-eds or on TV or on social media. Were you able to maintain friendship with these people? Yeah, mostly, I would say. I mean, it's sometimes gets a little strained, I, I think. Uh, but there were very few cases where I can remember real real hostility, maybe one just drifted away from people if one ended up disagreeing with them on, on, on really fundamental things, or maybe not. Again, uh, we tried to certainly not make it personal, as it were. We tried to criticize the arguments more than the people. Now, politicians have thin skins, so when you wrote a profile, when you published a profile of a politician, and it would maybe point it out that the politician wasn't admirable in every way, or told funny stories about how he got thing, he or she got things wrong, or was vain or foolish or, you know, then of course you one got the phone calls and the kind of complaints, but that that's a little different from the more intellectual debate. So no, I, I thought there was a general mood of reasonable tolerance and respect among conservatives, and I would say between conservatives and serious liberals. And look, one thing that's been interesting about the last two, three years, and I think ultimately will be healthy, is I've rethought some things. I think any intelligent person uh, looking at the West, leave aside Trump, but live, looking at the Western countries, looking at liberalism and conservatism, looking at the world economy, looking at world politics, looking at domestic politics. Uh, if you haven't rethought anything over the last three, four, five years, you're not paying attention and you're not thinking. I mean, it's just obvious that it's a time of great turmoil and challenge, and uh, it would be idiotic not to sort of say, well, gee, I kind of thought this would work out this way, but it isn't, so what, what does that tell us about the modern economy or modern society or modern intellectual life or whatever. Uh, so I'm, I'm, and some of that, a lot of that rethinking I think will be healthy. There was maybe a kind of uh, ossification or stultification that set in a little bit. I, I don't, you know, everyone sort of had the fort, the cannons, you know, pointed in one direction and it was the, you know, 87th incident of a conservative speaker being harassed or a, um, a liberal professor insisting on, on students going at a, or administrator insisting on students you know saying this and not that or even honestly persecuting students who differed and, and look I'm it's worth objecting to all 87 of those instances it's bad that's not what liberal education is supposed to be but it led to a kind of probably a little bit of uh, routinization you might say of outrage and and uh, maybe it's not as much 
creative thought as, as, as there might have been about well, what do we do about this and incidentally what is the right way to have to advance liberal education is it through the universities anymore and, and who's actually saying interesting things that isn't who aren't in the universities and you know and I don't know I just think I, I'm sort of hopeful that we come out of this period with with some interesting fresh thinking some rethinking of things in my case I would say a little more appreciation of a kind of old-fashioned classical liberalism which I always was in favor of but you know, there's so much. If you're an intelligent observer, you know all the qualifications and uh, all the conservative critiques and, and and sort of modifications and the dilemmas and paradoxes of classical liberalism and democratic capitalism. Uh, one thing the last few years has reminded me of is the kind of core argument for classical liberal democracy and the classical aspects of, of the liberal regime. And um, those probably need to be restated and, and thought through once again. If you were in some hypothetical scenario to start a new publication, would it include a print edition or would you just simply go straight to pure online? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I think uh, probably a print weekly is now uh, an awfully heavy lift, both economically and even in terms of people's, the way people you know, read articles. And that is to say, I think the trouble with the, the print weekly made a lot of sense when we started it, and I think it stayed strong till the end once it existed and that 50, 60,000 subscribers. It made sense to keep on doing it, but it's a lot of work. Some of the stuff that's the old days weekly was much more topical as opposed to a monthly, let's say, commentary magazine or The Atlantic or many fine magazines that were monthlies. And the topicality now is really online, though, and so it's not as if you pick up a weekly to find out, well, what happened about the government shutdown two days ago or, or something like that. So um, I would make a case still for print for various reasons, but maybe the model, if I were starting today, would be you know a very good website, high-class website, carefully edited, not just stuff thrown up to get clicks or sort of random articles just to fill up space, well-curated website. And then maybe a monthly print magazine where you would, which would be much more long-form journalism profiles, you know, sort of big think articles. I, I could imagine that. But it might also be the case that even the monthly print is not necessary anymore or is, goes to a declining demographic of, of readers and, and everything could be online. I'm, I'm pro-online basically in the sense that I, I think it's, um, I mean, obviously it's the future and obviously it's where younger people get more and more of their reading. And and uh, and I don't think anymore, as I did, would have said maybe 10 years ago, that it's hard to have an online-only publication and people sort of have a, put a question mark next to it in terms of quality. And they tend to think, well, can't we, you know, play isn't quite as good as something that has a that's print plus online. I would have said that. And it may have been unfair then, too, incidentally, but that was, I think, a pretty widespread view 10 years ago. I, I think that's much less the view uh, today. Maybe it's not the view at all. Let me briefly ask you about the book industry, because there are certain authors who sell very well. I was talking to one conservative publisher who, who lamented to me that unless a conservative book is going to get promoted heavily on Fox News, it's not worth publishing it. Have you found that even in highbrow conservative intellectual circles, there is now a gatekeeping effect created by cable television that unless you can get your book on TV, it's not going to be economical to publish? You know, I'm not an expert on that. I mean, I think it's obviously a huge advantage, and but what does not economical mean? It's also cheaper to publish books than it used to be, and I think some publishers are using that somewhat as an excuse. I do think there are fewer publishers that feel a kind of old-fashioned commitment to publishing a broad range of books and not assume that all of them or most of them would be huge sellers. And, 
you know, assume that a lot of them would be moderate sellers that kind of would pay for themselves, and some of them wouldn't. And, you know, that was the case with most books once upon a time, whether it's both fiction and nonfiction. And these names that we look back on with, with some respect and, you know, very important thinkers, a lot of them didn't sell much. There were the occasional ones that broke through, the Alan Blooms and so forth. There was the people like Bill Bennett, who was kind of a Bill uh, Buckley, who, well, Bill Bennett too, I guess. But Bill Buckley, who was enough of a celebrity to really sell books. But there were an awful lot of the important conservative and liberal and other thinkers of the last 50, 60, 70 years who, uh, you know, kind of mid-list, you might say, writers. Uh, I think it's worrisome that there are just fewer publishers who seem committed to that. The good news, though, is a lot of that material can be gotten online, and people do learn uh, that way. And, and so I, I think it's a bit of a trade-off. You know, I, I do these conversations with Bill Crystal where we try to publicize precisely, you know, the, I hope the conversations are worth reading in their own right, but worth watching or listening to on their own, in their own right. But one of the purposes is to also has some younger people who are so much more accustomed to video or audio. You can listen to the conversations as podcasts, like this podcast, and say, well, that's interesting that, you know, what Harvey Mansfield has to say about the Federalist Papers. Maybe I'll look, at the, look go look at the Federalist Papers, which I didn't read most of in college. Maybe I'll actually go look up Harvey Mansfield. Maybe I'll look up other people who Mansfield has referred to who have written interesting essays about the dilemmas of liberal democracy or how self-government uh, should or shouldn't work. And so I, I think there are other ways than the more traditional Random House and Knopf and Penguin publishing an awful lot of books and books of essays uh, to get, you know, in effect, the same ideas out there. But um, I, I don't know how much book, book publishing may be a decreasing part of the intellectual discourse. I guess one exception to that would be Canada's own Jordan Peterson. I think his last book sold something like two million copies. I recently learned that, that you have met Jordan Peterson, and I think you, you appeared at the same event. I'm wondering where you think Jordan Peterson fits, if at all, into the system of conservative thought that's emerging these days. So I'd say, I mean, he's an interesting case, though. So my impression is the book sold, but I may be slightly wrong about this. One reason the books became such huge sellers is that he became such a huge figure, really more on YouTube and than on podcasts. So it is a kind of interesting case study where the, the books don't take off quite the way they used to by themselves. But, but that's fine, too. I, I don't know. Uh, I mean, I like Jordan Peterson. We had a nice talk I, at this conference and spent some time together. I, I don't know, honestly, his work that well. And, you know, again, I'm very liberal in these small L sense, or pluralist, or, or whatever the right word is on, on sort of thought. I have my own, you know, I was educated by certain people. I take certain things more seriously than others. And it's a new century, and I, I don't have a dogmatic view about what the right way to approach some of these issues are. And, I, and one thing I have learned over my sort of adult life, I'd say much more, I'm, I'm more liberal with a small L in that sense today than I was 40 years ago. I used to think, you know, if you didn't really study the classics in the right way and understand the history of political philosophy in the way my teachers taught it to me, you're not going to get other things right. You can get a lot of things right, if I can use that simplistic formulation. You can have insights into a lot of issues from a lot of different disciplines and lots of points of view and lots of strains of conservatism and liberalism, too. So I'm, uh, you know, to the degree that Jordan Peterson is is a counterpoint and a counterweight to a kind of stultifying progressive orthodoxy, I'm, I'm for him. You obviously have a lot of things to say and, and to write about what's going on right now. What is your next project? 
Uh, I'm not sure. I probably should try to write something more serious, but uh, I'm also trying to be involved in you know actual practical politics here in the U.S. in terms of the Republican Party and conservatism, and uh, so I've got various things going on. I'm teaching a little bit on a couple of campuses. So uh, we'll see. We'll see. I, I'm not sure. Plenty of people have, a, have good things to say. One thing I can do perhaps is get them a little bit more attention. That's what we did at the magazine. I, you know, I was not the best writer and the best contributor or the most frequent probably contributor to the Weekly Standard over its history, but I, I think we helped get a lot of other people the attention they deserve, and I think that's one thing I can continue to do. Well, I hope you will consider contributing to Quillette in the future, and I thank you for joining us on the podcast. I'd, I'd love to do that if I can meet the high editorial standard of Quillette, which I very much admire, but you'll put in a word for me, so that'll be good. Thank you so much. Thanks. If you would like to support Quillette, please consider becoming a patron. Head to our Patreon page. That's patreon.com forward slash Quillette. If you haven't already, follow us on social media. We're on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Do you like what you're hearing? Perhaps you would like to read more about the issues in today's discussion. Head to quillette.com where you will find more content.